1009 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 44 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of Lightspeed and Fantasy Magazine, and I've also edited several anthologies, such as Armored, uh, an anthology about powered armor and mecha, which is coming out from Bayon Books in April next year, and Under the Moons of Mars, New Adventures on Barsoom, an anthology detailing the further adventures of John Carter of Mars, which comes out from Simon & Schuster in February. And I'm David Barr-Kirtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including The Ontological Factor, about a nervous philosophy student who finds himself in a house full of doorways to other worlds. The story is out now in the September-October issue of Cicada Magazine. And our guest today is Charlene Harris. She's the author of the best-selling Southern Vampire Mystery series, which was adapted by director Alan Ball into the hit HBO series True Blood. She recently edited the Sookie Stackhouse Companion, as well as the short story anthologies Death's Excellent Vacation and Home Improvement Undead Edition. Okay, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Charlene Harris. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so uh, to start with, could you just tell us, how did you first come up with the idea of vampires drinking synthetic blood? Well, I started off, uh, my initial thought on the series was I wanted to write about a woman dating a vampire. But to make them less uh, less frightening, to give them a reason for being out, uh, I had to develop a theory that would let them look less vicious. So they would have to have another food source. So um, I read some articles about synthetic blood, which never has really worked out before now, though people have made the attempt. Uh, And it seemed to me like a viable synthetic blood would be the perfect answer to my problems. Vampires could say, oh, no, we're not dangerous. We drink synthetic blood. We don't want to grab you and bite you. Uh, And people could believe that um, because people are, are gullible. Okay, so you know, like, every vampire series has slightly different rules when it comes to how the vampires work. Um, so for your series, how did you come up with the rules, and is that something that you worked out in detail to start with, or did the rules just sort of evolve naturally as the story took shape? I started out knowing a few things. First, uh, they wouldn't be able to go out in dead daylight. Uh, I think, even though, you know, in the books, Dracula is, is a daywalker, but I had to have some system of checks and balances. I figured, because otherwise vampires are so powerful that there really wouldn't be any point in humans trying to outwit them or stand up to them. There were some things I just decided not to tackle. Uh, For some reason, and I can't quite understand why, readers are secretly fascinated with the physical output of vampires. They are always trying to think of a nice way of saying, do your vampires poop? (laughs) Uh, or do your vampires ejaculate? And I'm just going, you know, (laughs) this is just, vampire bathroom habits are just not interesting to me. (laughs) Okay, uh, so the the Sookie Stackhouse series uh, seems seems equally likely to appeal to fans of horror, mystery, and romance. Uh, Was that by design? Absolutely. Uh, I don't really plan my career out in any detail which is one reason my success was so late in life. But uh, I did hope that if I adopted a kitchen sink approach, which was something I had always wanted to do, it wasn't calculated, 
that it would appeal to uh, mystery readers, romance readers, horror readers, and hopefully science fiction readers too. Uh, so you said you're reaching the end of the Sookie Sackhouse series. Uh, do you have any thoughts about what works and what doesn't when it comes to wrapping up a long-running series? <laughs> uh, I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, I haven't ever wrapped up a series that ran this long. Uh, the previous series I have have not. Uh, I don't think they've exceeded seven or eight books. So this is a new experience for me. I've lived with Sookie for a long, long time. By the time the last book is published, which will be in 2013, and it'll be the 13th book, uh, I will have been with Suki for 15 years, uh, almost the entire uh, growing up period of my daughter, actually. So that's, it's going to be kind of a jolt uh, not to have her here anymore, living in the house with me. But at the same time, I find that facing the end of the series is giving me the most tremendous shot in the arm. I mean, could you give examples maybe of other series that you think have ended well or ended poorly and sort of what, what made them good or bad? Well, of course, I thought the ending of Six Feet Under was brilliant. Uh, and I am one of the, the few people I know who thought Lost was great. Uh, I thought the ending was fantastic. Uh, for book series, I'm not completely sure that I've known other people who've wrapped up long-running series and I've lasted through to the last book. So all I can say is uh, thanks to my readers who have, and I've always known how the series would end and that's how it's going to end. Um, I know I can't make everybody happy. That's why I'm going to go on vacation when the last book comes <laughs> <laughs> I mean, could you say, what did you like about the finales of uh, Six Feet Under and Lost? the Six Feet Under finale was unexpected uh, and poignant. Uh, Alan went to all the characters at their moment of death, and since death was the theme of the show, that seemed uh, weirdly appropriate and something I would never have thought of, uh, and I always admire that. Uh, the ending of Lost was mystical, and a lot of people thought it was a cheat, but I didn't. It felt satisfying to me. Uh, and it was, it had sort of a Six Feet Under-ish vibe to it, too, and kind of a Titanic vibe, um, you know, when all the, the Titanic people who died are waiting at the end for Rose to come. Uh, the ending of Lost was somewhat reminiscent of that, too. So I guess it seems I like a lot of death at the end. <laughs> So, uh, you know, the TV show True Blood kicked off with this really interesting viral marketing campaign that made it seem as if synthetic blood was an actual product and as if vampires were really making their existence known. Um, were you aware that that was going on? And if so, what did you think about it? I think HBO has uh, a wonderful marketing department. They have seemed to have hit, hit a vein. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, they seem to have hit a, a real vein with people. Uh, their, their marketing is very successful, very attractive and very exciting. As far as getting advance warning, no, why would mm -hmm. I? Um, I've done my part, <laughs> really. Uh, okay, so, and, and you know, True Blood, True Blood, the TV series, diverges significantly from, significantly from your books uh, to the extent that you've said that you often don't know what's going to happen next on the show. Uh, what have been some of the biggest surprises for you while you watched it? Well, um, there have been many surprises, almost too many to name. I think 
knowing that that J Jason in the books is very much like Jason on the show, but you don't see it in the books. Uh, and that was a tremendous uh, uh, startling moment to me. And I thought, ooh, because Jason in the books is a stupid horn dog and he <laughs> is in the show too. Uh, he's a little sweeter in the show than he is in the books. Jessica was a complete surprise to me, but I think a brilliant one. Uh, she's not in the books. And uh, I think she's a great addition to the show. Uh, those are the, the two most startling. I think, of course, uh, Lafayette lived, and I kind of expected that. Nelson Ellis saved his own life uh, by being so brilliant hmm. in the show. And in the books, of course, he wasn't that great uh, or as, as charming as Nelson, and he died. Uh, so you said that Anne Rice is one of your favorite authors. Uh, could you tell us? Uh, could you tell us about why you enjoy her writing and what sort of influence she's had on you? Sure. Um, I'm not such a great fan of the witch books, but her vampire books, I just loved. Um, I loved Interview with a Vampire. At the time it was published, was one of the most startling, innovative books on the market, and it it held that that pride of place for many years. I just can't tell you how impressed I was with the originality of her thinking. I still think that book was just a masterstroke. And I think so many of her ideas are classics. She's had as much influence on the vampire genre as Dracula did. Was there anything in particular that she did that you wanted to emulate and anything that you wanted to do differently? Well, I can't write like her. Uh, there's no point in me trying. I've got a different agenda than Anne Rice uh, has had. Uh, so I, I don't try to emulate her, except I hope in my goal of producing the best book I can possibly produce. So there are there are great differences. Uh, and the background of Anne's vampires, since they can't are, and are not interested in having sex, there's a tremendous homoerotic vibration going on in the background of all the books. And in my books, uh, vampires can have sex and are, you know, very enthusiastic <laughs> about that uh, with, with whomever they feel like having it. So mine is uh, a more overt, maybe an obvious uh, sexuality than that in Ian's books. Uh, so the Twilight series has been a big hit in recent years, uh, particularly among teenage girls. Uh, what's been your take on the whole Twilight phenomenon? Um, I think that Stephanie Meyer hit the nerve she was trying for. Honestly, I think it was like a shot in the dark that paid off big for her. And I'm really glad for anybody who can make money in today's market. She opened the door for a lot of people. Uh, because of her, a lot of young people are growing up reading vampire that might not necessarily have enjoyed the genre otherwise. And I also think her readers grow up to read my books. I've, I've read her books. She says she does not read other vampire writers ever. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I don't know her, and that's, you know, probably all I can say about the Twilight books. Did you grow up reading vampire stories yourself, or is that something you got interested in later? I grew up reading anything I could get my hands on. I've always been a voracious reader and remain so to this day. I read mysteries. I read classics. I read Dracula. I read anything and everything. And I think that was a, a wonderful, wonderful freedom my parents gave me. Were there any uh, particular books that, uh, that really inspired you when you were younger? There were. Uh, 
and since I've been thinking about this a lot lately, I can actually remember the names of some of them. Uh, I think Jane Eyre was the basic book for the whole romance field. If you look at the elements in Jane Eyre, they've been repeated over and over and over. The unconventional heroine who looks conventional on the outside, the brooding hero, the mad wife, the, the, you know, the big block to their happiness ever after, which gets removed. Um, and then the Three Musketeers, which is like the seminal buddy movie, but written. Uh, and believe me, the Three Musketeers, the original novel, is not anything like the children's version or like the movie version. It's a very body book with a lot of very unconventional relationships in it. Uh, those were two that were really, really important to me. Uh, and I'm sure there were many others. I read a lot of Ray Bradbury, uh, H.P. Lovecraft, you know, on and on and on. Uh, okay, and so uh, according to your website, you're a science fiction fan. Uh, who are some of the some of your favorite authors these days uh, in science fiction specifically as opposed to fantasy and horror? Connie Willis is one of my huge favorites. Uh, Julie Trinita, I think, is very, very good. Um, Mike Carey. Uh, is is so good. Um, oh my gosh, there are just so many. I just read a wonderful book called Ready Player One, Iris mm -hmm. Klein, that I thought just blew my socks off. I was lucky enough to read it uh, a few months ago in manuscript form, and it's really totally gratifying to see it getting big, big uh, publicity now. Okay, so, you know, your Harper Connolly series features a main character who, who develops supernatural powers after being struck by lightning. Uh, how did you get that idea, and what sort of research did you do on the effects of being struck by lightning? I did research uh, lightning, even though, to me, it's still pretty much magic, though I've read the scientific explanation many hmm. times. Uh, and luckily for me, there is a group for lightning strike survivors. Uh, they were kind enough to let me listen in for a while, which I appreciated very much. It's a select group uh, of people who keep having physical problems for many, many years after the original incident. It was just fascinating and touching to read the difficulties they have with the medical establishment in getting treatment for these various problems they develop. Uh, so your bibliography lists a piece you wrote called An Evening with Al Gore. Can you tell us what that's about? Oh, that's my ecological horror story. I just loved that story. Um, it was really very different for me. Uh, but it was it's about uh, some supernatural creatures who are really st struck by Al Gore's arguments in favor of uh, recycling and turning the world around, and they carry it to a very extreme degree. Uh, so in addition to writing, you've also edited a number of, uh, number of anthologies. Uh, how did you get involved with that, and what sort of books uh, have you worked on before? Well, uh, I was approached by Marty Greenberg, uh, God bless his memory, and Marty was interested in uh, producing an anthology that I would edit. Um, I didn't feel qualified to take that on by myself, but my dear and close friend Tony Kellner is a fantastic editor. And so I told Marty, and this was several years ago, that I would be glad to undertake it if Tony could be my partner. And he readily agreed. So Tony and I are, are about to do our fifth anthology together. And that has been a, a great learning experience for me. 
uh, I get to read other writers and figure out what makes their stories work or not. And, uh, and then I have to be really, really tactful when I ask them to make changes. So it's been very good for me all the way around. I saw your, your most recent one that came out was a sort of home, sort of supernatural home improvement kind of book. How did, where did that idea come from? Uh, well, we sat down to brainstorm. Uh, we did like uh, special occasions for the first few, uh, birthdays, uh, the holidays, uh, vacations. So, but then we thought home improvement would be fun. Everybody's got a terrible story about home improvement. <laughs> Uh, they don't usually end as bloodily as the stories in our books. The next one's going to be set uh, in any kind of school or classroom. It's going to be called an apple for the creature. Uh, could, you, what, could you give an example or two of, of the stories where home improvement goes bloodily wrong? Oh, sure. Uh, Melissa Mars got a great story in there uh, about uh, a neighborhood um, you know, a neighborhood watch situation where the person in charge of enforcing the neighborhood rules pushes in once too many. <laughs> uh, and uh, there's a great halting story in there, too, where a woman comes back to try to redo the apartment uh, where she actually killed her boyfriend many decades before. All right. And so and, and are there any other uh, recent or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Oh, sure. The Sookie Companion. Uh, is coming out at the end of this month, next week. And it has been delayed once, so I'm very glad to see it finally appearing on the shelves. Uh, it was a huge coordination nightmare because so many people were involved. I wrote an original novella for it, and there was there's an interview with me, an interview with Alan Ball. There's uh, a timeline. There's a family tree. There's a map. Uh, there's a compendium of all the characters that have ever been in any Sookie novel. Uh, you know, it was just a massive undertaking. And I will be, it got to where I would almost break out in hives <laughs> when I saw companion in the subject line <laughs> of an email. Uh, I mean, what, what, what have been some of the most interesting uh, comments that people have posted on your, uh, on your, on your board? Uh, interesting uh, can be interpreted so many different ways. <laughs> Uh, some people are so invested in Sookie's relationships that they develop a violent partisanship between one suitor and another. And finally, we had to just ban that discussion from the board. Uh, people get very, very vehement. One woman said, oh, if, if Sookie doesn't end up with Eric, I'm going to kill myself. And I said, you know, surely not. Surely you wouldn't. And there, there have been pretty intense arguments over other aspects of the book. I just never expected all that. Of course, I guess I'm just not used to anybody paying attention to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, like I know that Laurel K. Hamilton has had sort of problems with some of her fans. Is that have uh, have you had any problems like that? Not as not as uh, probably intense as Laurel's, but yes, I, I've had a problem or two. Yeah, I had uh, one person who showed up at. Oh, four or five of my signings in a row, and they were pretty widely separated geographically. So that was a, of a little concern to me. Uh, I've had people who seemed very, very uh, intense about whether or not Suki would end up with Eric. Very intense about that, uh, to the point where I, I'm a little concerned about, about them. 
Well, that actually does it for our questions. I don't want to end on that note, though. Let's see. <laughs> what's, uh, what's, what's, uh, what's something cheerful? Uh, is there anything cheerful you'd like to talk about to, <laughs> to wrap things up? Well, uh, let's see. Um, Tony and mine's new anthology is out. The Companion will be out. Uh, I have wrapped up the next Sookie, which will be out next May. It's called Deadlocked. Uh, then I have a short story to write for Joe Lansdale. I have one to write for our anthology. Uh, then I'll start Sookie 13 and finish it. And then I can write whatever I want to write. <laughs> well, that sounds great. Uh, all right. So, uh, Charlene Harris, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you for inviting me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Charlene Harris for joining us on the show. All right, and so for our discussion today, we're going to be talking about some of the other uh, TV shows that are on right now that are adapted from uh, novel series. Uh, we wanted to talk in particular about Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, and Dexter. If you've uh, been listening to our show for a while, you know that we talked about the first couple episodes of Game of Thrones in uh, episode 35, which was our Daniel Abraham interview. And we talked about the first couple episodes of Walking Dead in episode 25, which was our Robert Kirkman episode. Uh, but, we're, you know, we've now seen all of season one of those shows, so we're going to have more of a sort of overall retrospective look at them. And I guess we'll just start out, you know, John, now that we've seen all of season one of Game of Thrones, uh, just what did you think of the show overall? Oh, well, I mean, I thought it was pretty great. Uh, you know, I mean, when we were uh, talking about the first couple episodes, you know, I mentioned how, um, you know, watching the first couple episodes inspired me to go back and reread the book you know, which I hadn't done in a while. And, and, you know, it was sort of good preparation for uh, the the then forthcoming uh, Dance with Dragons. It was, it, was, it was good preparation for that anyway. But having, you know, just reread the book sort of ahead of the show sort of gave me a really fresh perspective to to see how how well it was being adapted. And and really, I mean, it, um, I mean, I thought it, I mean, it was just, it really couldn't have been much better. I mean, you know, there's a few scenes here and there, I think, there where they were like additional scenes that I was like, well, I don't know if that was really necessary. Um, and there's at least one that was sort of probably a little was a little problematic. I know a lot of people had problems with it, that it was like sort of uh, overly gratuitous or whatnot. Um, but uh, I mean, for the most part, I think uh, everything uh, everything was adapted quite well. You know, I have I have a few quibbles with the with the final ep, with the final episode. Like, uh, I mean, I think it's very well done, but it doesn't have quite the power that the ending of the novel does. And the novel, the ending of the novel is amazing. You know, I mean, it's like you know, I, and I'm not going to spoil anything for it. But I mean, just uh, when you're reading the book and you get to the last couple chapters and and you know everything that's happening there, it's just like it's it, it hits you with such such uh, there's like so much emotion and it's so so intense and and so cool uh it's just like it's like brilliant and then the ending of the show just like it, it captures some of that but it didn't quite capture all of it for it to me and and maybe it's just a case that i had really high expectations going into it because i knew what was going to happen and i was really looking forward to seeing how it was rendered on screen but um it didn't quite do it for me but i mean uh, overall the the first season i thought was you know very well done uh, actually, I actually really liked the the finale of the show, and maybe uh, you know, maybe it's a matter of expectations because I wasn't really looking forward to it. I was really dreading how hmm. bad it might be, mm -hmm. um, and so the fact that it was as good as as good as it was, you know, was was sort of a thrilling relief for me. Yeah, uh, I guess if you don't want to spoil it, I mean, I, I, I'll I'll be circumspect, but I mean, obviously, the the thing that had me the most concerned was whether the computer graphics would be good enough to you know yeah, detect yeah. what happens, and and I was really pretty impressed. Uh, 
especially on a TV budget with uh, with how good they, they looked. But no, I mean, overall, I was re- really pleased with the show. I actually thought it got better uh, as it went along. I thought, that, you know, as it sort of built toward the, the climax of those last couple episodes, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I found myself getting more and more uh, involved. And I, I actually, I mean, thinking back to our... Um, our episode where we discussed the first two episodes. I mean, a lot of my impressions of the show, I think have remained amazingly consistent, you know, from what I said then. I mean, I, you know, I, I said, I thought the casting was really good and I continue to think the casting was really good throughout the whole first season. Um, I thought that the budget wasn't always sufficient to do a, a real epic fantasy the way I imagined it should, mm-hmm. you know, the way I imagined it in my head. And that continued to be the case. Mm-hmm. throughout the first season uh i remember saying i thought some of the nudity was kind of tacky uh mm-hmm. in the first episode and that continued to be the case uh, yeah throughout, yeah throughout the season yeah i mean that's the case of the of the of the sort of super superfluous scene that i was talking about it's you know i think you probably can, even can guess the one i mean uh, well the, it's the one with everyone yeah, it was ahead. calling the sex position scene the combination yeah of sex yeah and yeah position. i guess i i wanted to mention you know i uh Went and saw, you know, uh, John and I were just at the World Science Fiction Convention in Reno, Nevada. Actually, where John, you know, just got married. And we found out that uh, George R. R. Martin had his wedding ceremony <laughs> in the same venue uh, that John did just hours later. So I was saying if I had, I think that's really cool. I was saying if I had known about that, I probably would have just like hid in a cabinet or something. <laughs> tried to s- crash the, the George R. R. Martin ceremony, which is I'm sure why they didn't uh, tell anybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that that's what, what was going on. Um, and, the, and the good news is everyone survived both weddings. <laughs> uh, and also then at Worldcon, George R. R. Martin gave a lecture where he screened the episode of Game of Thrones that he wrote the screenplay for. Uh, mm. It's called The Pointy End. It's either, uh, I think it's episode seven, seven or eight maybe. And so so he showed that uh, showed that episode and then sort of would pause the video every once in a while and just sort of talk about what he had written and what they were able to film and stuff like that. It was really interesting. I mean... I had really not known until I heard him talk about it how <laughs> restrictive the budget stuff was. You know, he was saying, like, like he showed that there's a scene where um, Tyrion is leading the, tri- the the clansmen out of the um, mountains of the moon, and mm-hmm. they show up at the Lannister encampment, the Lannister army's encampment, and they're all just on foot. And, you know, you're like, why aren't these guys on horses? You know, that would be so much better. And, and George was like, yeah, well, I wrote this scene, you know, they're all on horses, but we'd already blown our horse budget for the whole season. <laughs> so like pretty much every scene in that episode, he's like, just imagine these guys are all on horses. You know, we just couldn't afford right. horses. Yeah. You know, I actually, I wondered about that too. And, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it was that episode, but you know, the scene where, uh, uh, where Tyrion actually goes to fight, uh, with the troops mm-hmm. when, when, when his father orders him like to go on the front lines or whatever, and, or, or he's on the flank or something. I can't remember, but anyway, he's ordered to go do that. But then in the TV show, he basically gets knocked out right away. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the book, he actually fights. Right. Yeah. 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 And so I was like, I wondered if that was a budgetary thing too. It's like, cause they couldn't afford to like show all of that fighting in, in close up detail that they'd have to, if Tyrion had actually stayed conscious the whole time. Yeah, no, I'm sure they couldn't afford it. And I'm sure that, and they probably didn't have time for it either. Yeah, well, I was uh, yeah, I was disappointed not to see any. I mean, there were no battles at all in the show, right? Mm, that I can yeah. think of. I mean, uh, I was really disappointed not to see the battle of the Whispering Wood. You know, that mm-hmm. was sim- similarly. They just kind of cut to the you know cut to the aftermath of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that's you know that's all budget. George was actually saying that uh, 
in the in the episode he wrote, there's this part where Rob calls the band. You know, he decides he's going to go to war against the Lannisters, and he calls his bannermen to to come to his aid. And these uh, ravens fly out from Winterfell. And George said in his initial script, the way he wrote it, you would see each of the bannermen. You know, you would see like Roose Bolton skinning a, you know, flaying a guy alive, and then a messenger comes in, and then he, you know, calls his soldiers, and they all go riding out of the castle and stuff. And it would do that for you know for each of the the lords. And mm -hmm. uh, he's like, even when I wrote it, I knew they probably weren't going to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, so I sent it to the producers, Dave and Dan, and and they're like, no, <laughs> no. If we were to actually film this, it would be like five times our budget for the episode. You know, just mm -hmm. doing this one montage. Yeah, yeah. And even like uh, you know, there's no Jane Poole uh, character in the TV show. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty minor character, but you know, she becomes a little more important in the later books, and so you're kind of like. Why? Why is she not in there? You know how mm -hmm. how hard would it, how expensive would it be to hire one more teenage girl actress? Uh, mm -hmm. And the answer, according to George, is too expensive. You know, <laughs> more expensive than they could afford. You know, right, and right. That gives you a sense of exactly how tight things were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, you know, I wondered about um, about Rickon too, which is the youngest uh, Stark child, and it's like, I mean, I honestly, like, I forgot he was in the the, the show. Uh, you know, like, uh, it wasn't in, like in the first couple episodes, like, I guess like in the first episode, he's like there briefly, like they, they, they see him, but like, they never, they almost never talk about him. And, um, like in the books, he's much more prominent. I mean, like they mention him, you know, much more often. And, uh, and it wasn't until I actually started rereading the book alongside the series that I was like, Oh wait, Hey, what? Where, where where is Rickon? He's like never around, um, and like and that's basically true of the whole series, uh, the whole first episode, the whole first se the whole first season. Um, well, and speaking of like you know characters being absent, I mean you know a lot of people were complaining that the, complaining that the direwolves are kind of you know mm -hmm. MIA for a lot of the, the the season, and I guess you know they're just the, the George was talking about that too. He was saying that you know they the dogs they had playing the direwolves are these. It's this particular breed, evolution something or other. Um, but they're they were they've been bred specifically for movies to play wolves in movies <laughs> because they kind of look you know they've been bred to look more like wolves. Um, right. but, but they've also been bred to be really really friendly because you know you obviously don't want dogs that are going to be at all dangerous around the actors around particularly around child actors and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But so so then the problem though was that they actually couldn't get the dogs to be aggressive enough when they needed mm -hmm. them to you know they couldn't get them to growl and snarl and pretend to bite people and stuff. There was a scene actually where in that episode where um, Bran is talking to Osha uh, in the Godswood and uh, his dog Summer was supposed to be there and supposed to growl at Osha and they just could not get the do dog to growl. And so uh, it would just keep going up to her and licking her hand. And <laughs> so they finally just had to film it without the dog uh, in the scene at mm -hmm. all. It was funny. Wow. Actually, in that same episode, there's a part where the dog bites the fingers off of um, the great John Umber. Mm -hmm. And George said, it's a good thing that dog didn't just lick, go up and lick his fingers. That would have really uh, <laughs> had, a, had a big impact on the dramatics of that scene. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I mean, he was saying, you know, that, uh, you know, it's not clear what they're going to do for season two. I mean, I mean, presumably they'll have to go to, uh, you know, CG direwolves at some point as, you know, as they're supposed to get bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, it's really hard to do. Um I don't know if you saw uh, The Day After Tomorrow. They had CG wolves in that one, and they just looked ridiculous. Hmm. Um, and, you know, he said that, like, fur is one of the hardest things to do uh, with computer graphics. Um, but at least computer graphics wolves, you know, you can get them to bite people, no problem. <laughs> 
Actually, speaking of Osha, he's, you know, there's, there's a character, Asha, in the books, um, and she's going to be in season two, but they've changed her name to something else mm. uh, because they thought Osha and Asha sounded too similar, and people who mm-hmm. watch TV, I like, can't, sure. can't keep that stuff straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of annoys me, honestly, but, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they did the same thing, you know, with uh, uh, Lysa Aaron's son. He's Rob, yeah, yeah. Robert, he's, and he, he's called Robin in the in the TV show, which is kind of his nickname, but still, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that's one of, you know, one of the one of the clever things about Song of Ice and Fire is that, you know, there's this realization that, like, yeah, people, you know, lots of people have the same name in a real world, you know, mm-hmm. and it just gives a little bit more sense of reality to it. Mm-hmm. And then another thing he was saying is that, you know, people, because season one sticks very, very close to the book. Um, and people were, were saying, and, but he was saying, you know, that probably future seasons are going to start diverging more and more um, from the books because, uh, you know, these little, you know, they make they make little changes and these little changes, you know, ju- you know just have big impacts down the line. Uh, so, for example, in season one, there's this scene where Caldrogo kills one of his blood riders. Uh, I think his name is Mago. And, you know, this is the guy where he, uh, like, he rips his tongue out through his throat. Mm-hmm. That was apparently, that was actually uh, Jason Momoa's idea to, to do that. <laughs> but but in the books, that guy doesn't die. You know, he's still around. And, and George, the way he said it, it made you think that maybe the guy is going to come back and be sort of a significant character. Um, but obviously, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and, and the fact that they left out Jane Poole, you know, like stuff like that down the road could really start, uh, cause major divergences. Mm-hmm. It was also, it was was interesting just listening to him talk about it, because you can hear how he pronounces the characters' names. So, like, you know, there's the character who in the audiobooks is pronounced Brian of Tarif, and uh, I I absolutely hated that when I first Hmm. heard it, but now I've listened to the audiobook so much, it's kind of stuck in my head, and that's how I say it. But George says Brienne. Uh, which is how I, you know, imagined it at first. It was. Also- I think that's. A, I think that's a, how every reasonable person in the world would pronounce it, except for the narrator. <laughs> um, he also says Dothraki. Rather, oh, really? Rather than Dothraki. Hmm. Just about everyone says Dothraki too, mm-hmm. including the TV show. So I thought it was interesting that he pronounces it differently than you know, everyone, yeah. everyone including the TV show. All right. So uh, yeah. So let's move on to uh, the Walking Dead. Uh, so let's see, when we talked, um, back in episode 25, we talked about the first two episodes and I, I, I really loved the first episode and I was sort of so-so on the second episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What did you end up thinking about the, the season? Yeah. You know, overall I was left, uh, feeling like I should like it more than I do. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty good. It diverges a lot from the comics. Like, I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I kind of actually even wondered, like, why they adapted The Walking Dead at, at some point. Like, it's like, well, why why actually adapt The Walking Dead if you're going to diverge from it this much? It's like you have you have a comic book series that's plotted out and mapped out, you know, I don't know, like 13 trade paperback volumes already. Like, you know, so you've got all of the writing done for you already. It's already scripted. Why don't you, like, try to stay close to that? I mean, and it's already proven good. Um but uh, yeah, I mean, they just they 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 went off in such wildly different directions than the comic book that um, you know I was sort of a little I was sort of a little bothered by that, and then um, and then you know just even even if I just divorce it from the comic book and just watch it to enjoy it, like um, you know I, I don't know I I just didn't I didn't like it as much as I was hoping to. 
Yeah, I, I definitely by the end, I, I, I definitely got more and more frustrated by how much it was diverging from the comic books. And I was I was very sort of lukewarm on it by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, the, as I understand it, what, what happened was that, you know, you, typically for a TV show like this, you would have a, a pilot. And then, you know, if the pilot does well, it goes to series and then they film the whole rest of the season. And I guess what they decided to do with Walking Dead was rather than film a pilot, they would sort of film the whole, the first season would be kind of like an extended pilot. So they would film six episodes uh, and that would sort of be the pilot. And if that did poorly, they wouldn't make any more. But even even if it did poorly, they would have six episodes that they could slap onto DVDs and sell. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you just film one episode, there's nothing really you can do with it if it doesn't go to series. Mm -hmm. And so they needed some sort of more self-contained story that would fit into that six episode arc. And so they came up with the idea, they're like, well, the characters are in Atlanta. They would obviously, you know, one one obvious thing that they might think to do is go to the CDC, um, which is not, I mean, that's not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I didn't really like the the execution of it. Uh, oh, yeah, no, I hated it. Um, uh, I didn't like that at all. I don't, uh, I don't know. So, yeah, I, I loved the first episode. Some of the other, like, there were like, mo- you know, moments throughout that, those six episodes that I really liked. But, uh, and I'm still like, I still like it. I'll still, you know, tune in for season two. Um, mm-hmm. they, I, I listened to actually an interview with the, the actors and they're promising that season two is going to shock you like nothing that's ever appeared on <laughs> television before. So I certainly hope that's the case. Cause I, I, I definitely found that the darker the show was, the, the more I liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely going to stick around for season two as well. Um, just, you know, uh, it, like, again, I think this is a case of, uh, really high expectations. So, um, you know, because I, I like really love the, the comic book and yeah, I mean, uh, like, you know, when they diverged so much, that was disappointing, but then also because, um, I don't feel like it was as good. Uh, it's not just that it was different, but that it wasn't, it wasn't good as good either. Um, that was frustrating. So, and especially like you said, that last episode, like, you know, yeah, going to the CDC, that's a great idea, but yeah, the, the execution of that seemed really like, I didn't believe it. Um, you know, it, it didn't feel very authentic to me, you know, um, yeah, no, it so it totally seems like like a Hollywood version of the CDC. I mean, I, I I've mm-hmm. I've never been there, but <laughs> I, yeah. I I can state with a high degree of confidence that it's nothing like that whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Um, did uh, have you been following any of the bizarre behind the scenes rumors that have been coming out of Walking Dead? Uh, you know, I mean, I've heard I've I've heard you know the sort of general stuff like how Frank Darabont got run out or whatever, but I mean, I I don't know. I haven't I haven't been keeping up with what. Um, what actually happened. I mean, I know, like I saw, like, I guess at Comic-Con, like nobody was allowed to talk about it, or maybe that was right before it happened. But like at Dragon Con, I know specifically, I saw some blogs saying that, that the actors were given specific instructions not to talk about Frank Darabont or whatever, or to talk about what happened. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, and, and no, and not only the actors were given instructions, the audience was, were given, like they did a Q and A. The audience was were were told like I believe they said specifically six times don't ask any questions about Frank Darabont. So that that that's kind of funny. I mean I don't I don't like what what could have possibly happened there that they're so worried about the news getting out like you know what I mean? Um, I mean well one of the things that I heard was that um, that they cut the budget um, for Walking Dead in order to help finance the the next season of Mad Men. Um, that's that that was the most troubling rumor I heard. Um, and I don't know it, how legit that is, but, um, I mean, I could see, I could see if like, you know, if Frank Darabont, uh, basically just pushed back so much when they were cutting the budget that they fired him. Um, I could see that being what happened, but 
I mean, I don't think anybody really knows or whoever knows isn't saying, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, even before that, though, there was this rumor that like Frank Darabont had fired the entire writing staff and oh, yeah, right. was, like bringing in all new writers and people are like, oh, that's not true. I mean, I don't know. It just sounds like there's just, yeah, weird stuff going on behind the scenes and who I, I don't think we have any hope of knowing. But it yeah, it does just make you a little nervous that there seems to be so much uh, chaos and uncertainty. Just on the subject of Mad Men, I just want to say really briefly, I mean, it's a bit outside our purview for this episode, but uh, I mean, that's a really good show. And actually what got me to watch it initially was I read an article where they said that lots of science fiction fans like Mad Men because it has some of the same uh, things that appeal to people about dystopian science fiction. You know, mm -hmm. it's like looking mm -hmm. into this dark future, uh, mm -hmm. you know, except it's actually the actual past. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I just want to say, like, if you haven't watched Mad Men... You know, uh, you should give it a try. I think it's this. I think it's a really, really good show. All right. And then speaking of another show that's maybe a bit outside our purview, <laughs> but we're going to talk about it anyway because we really like it, is Dexter. This is a show uh, about a uh, a serial killer who kills uh, mostly other serial killers and, and just generally bad people. And uh, and I actually watched this. I started watching this show because John recommended it to me. And, you know, he's, you know, because I'd heard the premise. I'm like, I don't want to. I have no interest in <laughs> Because I've, I've sort of, I have this rule that I don't watch cop, doctor, or lawyer shows because <laughs> I've just seen too many of them, you know? It's like, I want to see something different. And like, serial, like, like how much more cliche can you get than serial killers, you know? But but anyway, John John told me to watch it, and, and so I did, and I love it. It's just this fantastic show. I'll say it's almost like a fan, like I would almost even say it's almost a fantasy show mm -hmm. because it's, uh, it, like the, it's this very sort of surreal Com it's like a surreal comedy almost, you know, that Dexter, uh, you know, it's very funny the way he has to sort of balance his killing with his family life. And he has these sort of ex existential angsty conversations with his victims before he kills them and stuff. And uh, it's it definitely feels like fantasy, even though it's t it's it's uh, strictly uh strictly takes place within the bounds of the the universe as we know it um although curiously in the books uh you know because this is based on a series of books um in the books it actually does veer into fantasy uh after a couple books and i i think that might be actually partially to help uh help the author diverge from the series a bit because the the first book basically um mirrors the first or the first season mirrors the first book almost exactly um although it's a rare case of a tv sh or it's a rare case of an adaptation where uh when they made changes to the to the tv or, or film or, or in this case tv when they made when they made when they made changes they actually improved it every time they made a change um and and i mean the first book is really good but man the first season is amazing but then so uh, the second season diverges from the books completely. You know, it's like uh, at the end of the – it just picks up where the first season left off, and it doesn't have anything to do with the second book. Um, so then, like, uh, the authors continue to write books as they continue to make episodes of the season – or the series. Um, and so at some point, he added um, actual fantasy elements into it. So uh, I believe Dexter's Dark Passenger actually is revealed to be a demon um, in the books. Uh, I actually uh, – Curiously enough, even though I'm a science fiction fantasy person, when I actually got to that in, in, in the in the books, I stopped reading them because it started to feel stupid to me. No, it's interesting. I actually just listened to an interview with Jeff Lindsay, and, uh, who, who wrote that series, and he said something I thought was really interesting, speaking of The Dark Passenger, but he said that you know he's done a lot of research into criminal psychology and stuff, and he was saying that, that this Dark Passenger 
uh, in, in the in the series, Dexter refers to the sort of aspect of himself that needs to kill people as his dark passenger. Um, but that that this is a real thing, and that people who have this, you know, can see it in other people. And he says that, you know, if you uh, uh, if if you were to like go to a bar on a military base or whatever, um, that you know maybe one out of a hundred people who would show up there have this, this dark passenger, this sort of compulsion. And that, you know, they've, t you know, people who have this say that, you know, if they're sitting there in a bar and someone else walks into the bar who has that, that they like instantly, they know like, Oh, that's another one. That's another person like me. They just recognize there's something where hmm. they recognize it in each other. But I think, I mean, I, one thing I was thinking about that makes Dexter sort of relevant for this show is that Dexter is really kind of like a geek hero, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. True, uh, true. I mean, they just, you know, refer to, you know, he's referred to constantly as a lab geek and, you know, and he's, you know, he's good at science. And, and so I, I think there's a lot in him that sort of geeks can identify with, you know, he's sort of obsessive about what he does and very socially awkward. <laughs> yeah. And well, and, but he, that he's, he's just different from other people and he's not, mm -hmm. um, he's not moved by the sorts of things that motivate average people. And so he's sort of isolated among crowds uh, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of geeks can sort of, you know, identify with that. Yeah, one of the fascinating things I, I find about his character is that, you know, he, he describes himself as sort of uh, dead inside. Like he has, like, you know, like he doesn't know how, he doesn't he doesn't understand, like, emotions or, or how to react to people or how, how, to, how to deal with people in that way. Um, and so he fakes it, you know. And that's kind of a fascinating idea that, that, that there could be, like, you know, that you could actually be interacting with people every day who, who are the same way that they, you know, they theoretically, they, they actually don't feel it. They don't actually feel what they're, what they're expressing, but they're just faking it because, you know, that's the only way you can actually get by in the world. But uh, I mean, I thought that was kind of a genius thing. Um, and and well, I mean, you know, sorry, were you going yeah. to say something? Oh, well, well, I think what's genius is, is the idea of uh, a sympathetically portrayed sociopath, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. and, I mean, that's a real, you know, that's, a, I read this, this really interesting book called the sociopath next door. Uh, where this person was saying it was an incredibly high percentage of the population. I don't remember. It was, I think, somewhere between 1% and 10%, something somewhere in there, are, mm -hmm. uh, are sociopaths, which means that they have no emotional connection to other people. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and, and that, you know, people who are sociopaths, generally, you know, very early in their childhood, they realize that they're just different from other people. And they, you know, realize that they're going to have to fake having emotions, uh, you know, sort of mm -hmm. fake having an emotional connection to other people uh, to, to just get along in human society. And so they're sort of like high, in, high intelligence and low intelligence sociopaths. But high intelligence sociopaths are often extraordinarily charming mm -hmm. um, and, you know, much more charming than ordinary people because it's something that they've had to study, <laughs> study really hard and work at. And so, you know, they're often, you know, and, and they often are like, business executives and things like that, things where, uh, where you actually, ex you know, you're actually rewarded for, for your ability to treat people badly, you know, just to sort of switch mm -hmm. off your empathy. Um, there was actually, there was a book, uh, that just came out where it was sort of, I can't think what it was, what it was, what the title was, but it was exploring, you know, how, how, you know, business executives and, and things are, you know, that the percentage of sociopaths working in those professions or something, you know, probably two or three or four times the rate of, of sociopaths among the general population. And the author talks about interviewing this, this, you know, businessman who's a sociopath and the guy's whole, uh, like living room is just full of stuffed condors and hmm. stuff like that, you know, that, that he just, 
is obsessed with and idolizes predators. And that's just something that's a very common feature of sociopaths. Wow. I mean, I do think most people, you know, I mean, most people can't relate to killing, you know, killing people or whatever, but I think most people can sort of relate to Dexter's feelings of, of not fitting in or, you know, sure, sure. feeling like, you know, people around me have no idea what's really going on in my head. And, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. if they only knew, you know, what, yeah, what, yeah. Would, what would they think? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's pretty universal. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think uh, I think the other part of it that appeals is the, uh, you know, like you were saying, the sort of absurdity of the situation. You know, you have this you have this guy trying to balance his serial killing with his family and, and all that. And then um, and also uh, there's the, uh, you know, the sort of vigilante aspect of it. I think that, uh, you know, there, there's something that uh, sort of appeals to us on, on, a, on a base level, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and and I think the idea of of training a serial killer uh, like, you know, identifying a serial killer at a young age and training him to do something good instead of uh, evil is, is kind of an interesting one. Does it does it seem like Dexter has gotten less sociopathic as the series has gone along? Yeah, I mean, I think he's I think he's learning how to be uh, a regular person. You know, I mean, I think uh, I think that's part of like his character development. And so I think that, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly present and I think it's intentional. I don't think it's just that they, uh, that they're getting away from his character. I think, uh, you know, I think that's intentional to, to show some character growth. Um, although it'll be, I, you know, I haven't, uh, we haven't seen episode, we haven't seen season five yet. So, uh, uh, and I won't say anything, I won't say any spoilers about season four, but, um, you know, there's something that happens at the end of season four that sort of makes you wonder, uh, what, what, what uh, you know, what's decks are going to be like now because yeah, it's kind of a, a major event. So, you know, if anything's going to affect him on emotional level, you would think that that would. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in season five. I, I've actually heard some bad things about season five. So I'm a little, I'm kind of dreading it. So, I, I mean, I hope it, I hope it, uh, I hope they were misguided, um, you know, misguided reviews, but, uh, but I was, I was going to say actually about the, the comedy, the, you know, sort of the dark comedy that, that the show has. Um, I think they kind of did a great job uh, setting that up right from the get go even just with the title sequence because like the sort of music that plays is like kind of kind of odd and goofy um and they do this uh they do this great you know uh the visual aspect of the opening sequence they have this great sequence where uh you know like they're showing all these average day-to-day -day things that dexter does when he wakes up but then it looks like it looks kind of violent kind of gross but it turns out like he's like you know oh he's just cutting he's just cutting ham or or he's just shaving his face or he's just like, you know, he's just like uh, squeezing an orange or, you know, or whatever. It's like, it's all these things that like actually look kind of gross and, and horrifying, but then like you see that they're actually just his, his regular day-to-day -day tasks. It's, it's very clever and amusing. Um, and and, I, and I, have, I have to believe that that was inspired by the opening sequence of the feature film, American Psycho, um, mm. based on the Brett Easton Ellis uh, novel where you just, in, in the movie, you just see sort of red drops falling, uh, and, you know, you eventually see that someone's decorating a cake, hmm. uh, you know. And, I mean, speaking of, like, is Dexter fantasy or not, it, it sort of seems like it's fantasy that this guy is able to get all this stuff done, you know. <laughs> it's like, you know, he's working a full-time job, he's married, he has, he has some kids that he's taking mm -hmm. care of, and he also has time to investigate criminals on the side and kidnap them and, and murder them right. in, in, in a way that... It must be. I mean, how long does it take to cover an entire room in saran wrap? Uh, yeah, and all yeah. This stuff, and uh, and then clean all that up, and then go out into the ocean and dump the bodies. I mm -hmm. mean, by the by the time you know, 
by the time of season four, you're like, okay, this is some parallel universe. Like, you know, nobody <laughs> could actually get all this stuff done, you know, in, in, in yeah, a typical yeah. day, you know. Um, I mean, unless maybe, like, maybe you had, like, an out where, like, you know, he, he actually only, he only, he, he gets by on, like, only, like, two hours of sleep or something like that, you know, uh, like, maybe, maybe he could get all of that done if, if you, you know, sort of factor in something like that, but, um, but, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't attempt to explain how he gets all this stuff done, so. I mean, one, one thing that I think is, is really good where, is that essentially, you know, his job is so technical that you get the feeling that, nobody who he, who he works with has any idea how it how long it takes him you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i mean you know i i know a lot of you know people often have jobs where you know like if you're working computers or something where the people you're working for have no idea how quickly you can actually do the stuff and so you know you actually uh you know you only you know you work for like an hour a day and then do your own stuff for seven hours a day and the people you know who have hired you don't uh, realized I actually, uh, Robert Kirkman actually, who wrote the walking dead, I think he, he said his first job was like that where, uh, you know, he did, he got most of his early comics done, you know, when he was supposed to be uh, working this job. So maybe Dexter, mm-hmm. maybe Dexter's like that, you know, he, uh, he's in the office, but you know, he's not actually doing lab work. He's, uh, researching, uh, prospective victims or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the problem is that, uh, there are other people in the, in the forensic department. So like, I would think like, you know, like Vince Masuka or whatever, at least he would, he would know, that Dexter was uh, just, you know, screwing around in there or whatever if he if he was too late on stuff, you know. Um, and Vince and so Masuka he... hardly seems like the kind of guy who would be, you know, on people to get their work done. You know, I mean, yeah, he's, true, he's probably true. surfing porn like seven hours a day. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, yeah, it's just uh, when Masuka's uh, surfing for porn, Dexter's like, you know, <laughs> you know, doing his research for his victim. So, yeah, yeah. So, they, so they actually get work done about the same thing. <laughs> I mean, in recent years, you know, there have been a couple of things that have been uh, adapted, you know, TV, fantasy and science fiction series, book series that have been adapted into TV shows. I mean, one would be Dune and uh, Children of Dune. Uh, I actually didn't make it very far into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you did, did you make it? Did you watch any of that? No, I mean, I, I know they were very highly regarded by a lot of people, but I, I couldn't get into either of them. And uh and I mean that's and that, and that's a little different too because those that was a mini, those were both miniseries they weren't actual like supposed to be ongoing TV series but still um, you know it's worth it's worthy of mention and I assume the other thing you were going to mention is the Earth Sea yeah, miniseries yeah. yeah also terrible <laughs> I think universally uh, considered terrible even Ursula Le Guin um, you know who wrote the books uh, you know has uh, decried it as as a basically uh, a crime against humanity um, so I don't think anyone thinks that was good. Um, although I admit I didn't get very far into it, and you know, yeah, I know, I'm sorry uh, to the haters who who hate when I do that. But um, <laughs> I, 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 it was so terrible I couldn't watch it. Um, and uh, actually, uh, but speaking of Sci-Fi Channel, I mean, um, they also adapted the Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. Um, and Jim Butcher is uh, one of uh, we just interviewed him. He'll be uh, featured in an upcoming episode. But uh, you know, based on his uh, Harry Dresden uh, novels. Uh, and that that made a, a one full season, I believe, and and then got canceled. Uh, you know, did you ever see that? Mm-mm. You know, I I saw it. I I thought it was okay. I, I never really, I didn't really take to it. Um, and I mean, I read I I've read a couple of the Dresden Files books, and and I mean, I think they're cool. But um, I I didn't I didn't uh, think that the adaptation was particularly good. 
And I mean, I mean, I was kind of sad for Jim Butcher because he seemed to he seemed to be happy with it. And and I mean, maybe maybe that was more like he was just he was he sort of had to say that he liked it. You know, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I mean, I guess if 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 you're if you have something being adapted, you're kind of obligated somewhat to support it. You know, um, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't really get into it though. One one uh, author told me one time that that in Hollywood, it's a, it's actually a serious consideration that they really prefer adapting stuff from authors who are dead. Because that means then the author is not going to trash it, you know, and and because right. the adaptations are so often awful, authors end up trashing them, you know, very often. So it's actually it's actually a real consideration they have. Like, is this person dead? Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm picking up a definite pattern when it comes to fantasy and science fiction TV series that they tend to all be really bad. <laughs> um, and uh, that's why, you know, uh, it was announced I don't know, like seven or eight years ago or something that the sci-fi channel was going to do Roger Zelazny's Nine Princes in Amber <laughs> as a mini, as a sci-fi channel miniseries. And I was just like, no, no, please <laughs> let that not happen. And, uh, fortunately, well, luckily it didn't, luckily it didn't. Yeah. But I mean, like the, the Chronicles of Amber is sort of, you know, you can't imagine a, you know, a, a series that needs a big budget more than that. You know, I mean, just the mm-hmm. idea of trying to do that on a TV budget is just, just painful to even think about. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. Uh, if anyone has any, you know, fantasy and science fiction TV shows adapted from book series that we didn't mention that you want to highlight, uh, you know, uh, post a comment over at io9. You can Go to our website at geeksguideshow.com and find the link for episode 44 with Charlene Harris. That'll take you over to io9 and uh, post a comment there. Uh, let us know what you think. And as always, we're sponsored by audible.com. And uh, it would really help us out if people would go to our website again at geeksguideshow.com and click on any of the ads for Audible. That'll take you to a page where you can sign up for a free trial subscription and get one free audiobook. And of course, uh, a free audiobook you might want to get is uh, something by Charlene Harris, our guest today. Uh, looks like pretty much all of her books are available through audible.com. So, you know, just pick one and uh, check it out. Another way you can support the show is uh, just by giving us a reviewer rating over at iTunes. So just go to iTunes and search for the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast and, uh, you know, just give us a, a review or a rating. Um, we're up to 69 ratings. And, uh, uh, you know, if you help us, we'd like to get to 100 by the year's end. So uh, if you can help us do that, we'd appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.